this week I was, uh, I was making my way through Jesus' most famous teaching. You know we've been talking about this, right? We know it. Most people know it as the Sermon on the Mount. It was recorded by Matthew. I would say that Matthew was Jesus' at least in the moment. He was Jesus' most controversial disciple. As many of you might know, Matthew was a tax collector, chief of all sinners in Israel. And he was that when Jesus said, hey, come and follow me. In Israel, there were few people regarded as greater sinners or further from God than Matthew would have been. He was a traitor to his country. He was a traitor to his religion. Most of these things, even today, right? Traitors, we know what, happened to, what happens to traitors. He used the power of Rome to extract and extort from his fellow countrymen taxes for the far, foreign ruling power of Rome, and he kept for himself whatever he could. Matthew records this teaching, but it's one that was preached quite often by Jesus. Luke, a first-century physician turned first-rate historian, he records a very similar teaching. It actually took place, it says, Luke says, when Jesus came down from a mountain. So it was same teaching, very similar, different location. It's called sometimes the Sermon on the Plain. And so I was walking through this section of teaching I'm going to share with you this morning, and I was asking myself the question that last week's guest, Sky Jathani, asked. I hope you all enjoyed Sky. I... Uh, I could sit around and listen to this guy, you know, talk for a long time. And I think if you were here, you had that same feeling. And Sky asks this question in, in these series of books, right? What if Jesus was serious? And he asks it in regards to this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. What if Jesus was serious about these things that he said? And not just kind of looking over at his disciples and going, wink, wink, this doesn't really apply. It's all pie in the sky, by and by. It's just spiritual stuff. Don't try to actually do any of these things. And so as I was thinking about that, what if Jesus was serious about these things, another question popped into my mind based on his teaching, one that I think should matter to all of us at some level or another. If Jesus were serious about his teaching, right, here's the question, and a lot of his teaching has to do with this concept of righteousness, here's the question, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, what does it mean to be a good person? You ever thought about that? What does it actually mean to be a good person? If you haven't thought about it, and I actually hadn't until I, till I started spending my time in this this week, given how ubiquitous that claim is in, in our culture, right, how, how big and, and prevalent that concept is in our hearts and minds, being a good person, it seems like we should, we should wonder about it. Like, what is that? Think about it, right? Is there anything thrown out more than, oh, he's, he's a good person? She's a good person. Right? In fact, right, um, maybe, maybe more than any other thing, isn't that how we would want, how people, how we would want people to describe us, right? Oh, Jim, you know, Jim's a good person. Sarah's a good person. Like, that's what, that's what we want, right? And we almost always drop really on there. Have you ever noticed that? The really good, he's a really good person. Not just good. It's like if you're a good person, that's okay. But if you're a really good person, right? We use it all the time. Sometimes we use it, often we use it, no, I spent too much time thinking about this, all right? Oftentimes we use it as an excuse, right? Well, I know he stole the money, and I know he shot the dog and started the fire, but you know, he, he's a good person, right? How often is he's a good person used as an excuse for like, well, yeah, I know, but you know, he's, he's a good person, right? I mean, is he? How would you know? Like, how would you know? I mean, we want to be a really good person. How about our kids, right? After the number one answer, if I just want my kids to be happy, what do you think the number two thing is we want for our kids? We just want them to grow up to be 
good, good people, good, a good person. I mean, what kind of person do you want your daughter to marry? If I was going to make a list of all of these different people, right, from bank president to CEO, and I put on that list a really good person, wouldn't that be what you'd pick? Like, well, I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want my daughter to, to be with a, a really good person. And of course, we're in church this morning, right? So who's kidding who? For almost all of time, religion, and I mean pick whichever religion you want, it doesn't matter. Religion has always told us to get to whatever fashion or form of, of reward or, or afterlife, whatever religion, whatever that religion kind of posits as, as the key, poses as the key, right? How do you get there? You get there by being a good person. It's like ingrained in us, right? If I went to Morristown today and said, tell me, why do you think you'll be, whatever religion you follow, why do you think you'll be in heaven? The answer is going to come back because I'm a good person. So all this is background with it being so seemingly important to us and, and both for this life and the one to come. If being a good person is really our chief desire in this life and determines the outcome of our next life, how do you define a good person? You ever thought about it? I mean, you call people this all the time. You think you're a good person. There's almost nobody in here. If I said, raise your hand if you think you're a good person, right? Wouldn't raise your hand. We all think we're good people. I mean, how, how do you define it? Is, it? is it an objective claim or is it a subjective claim? Is, it, is, it, is the scale, is it a sliding scale or is it, a, is it a fixed scale? Is it a relative claim or is it an absolute claim? And who, who decides if you're a good person or a bad person, right? Like, who gets to put it on the gravestone? He was a good person. And if I, if I want to be a good person, and, and I, 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 I claim to be a good person, shouldn't I know how it is I become a good person? Well, it's interesting because Jesus, after outlining those that are blessed in this kingdom of his. Jesus says, uh, I, am, I am the anointed king of a new kingdom, and I'm invited you in, away from one kingdom, into a new one I'm inaugurating, one he can't wait for to begin. In fact, he said it begins now. Not in the next life, but, it, but it's a kingdom that's breaking forth now. He says, blessed in this kingdom are the seemingly cursed in the kingdom of the world. Blessed, you remember this, we looked at this, are the poor and those that mourn and the meek. And then we looked at this a couple weeks ago after defining for the crowd that had gathered what their roles in this new kingdom would be, that they would be in this kingdom, salt and light. Jesus then makes an absolutely stunning statement, one that I think would have been met with an audible gasp in the crowd. He says, for I tell you, because I'm telling you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you're certainly not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your good person status, whatever that means, is higher than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And remember, if, if you're unfamiliar with this, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Israel are the professionally righteous. They are the ones whose identity and position and power are all predicated on their ability to quite publicly preach and teach and keep the law. This isn't just what they do, this is who they are, and they do it for everyone to see. Their law-keeping was, because it had to be, their law-keeping really was, 
And we need to get this straight because we read Pharisee, we think bad guy a lot of times if you're around the church. Their law keeping was above reproach. You don't often see people saying, well, I saw the Pharisees break this law or that law. You name the law, 600 plus of them, and they were keeping them all. They would make up laws to ensure that they didn't come close to breaking an actual law. And so Jesus says to this crowd, by the way, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, unless you're a better person as judged by their actions and behavior than they are, you're not going to heaven. To which everyone in the collective crowd, right, this is very different than other religious figures. They're always telling you, here's what you have to do to get to heaven. Jesus is going, well, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, and they're professionally righteous, you get no shot. This is where, if you were me that, that day, and my friend brought me to hear this, this you know, this rabbi that, that is this deep teacher, I would have been like, Joan, go warm up the car, Right? Like, there's no use for staying for any of this. If we leave now, we could beat the after-church rush over to the diner, right? We're, clearly, I'm done here. I mean, I've got a job to do. i got bills to pay, kids to raise. Their sports and their games take up all my time. I mean, these guys, the Pharisees, being good is their job. I, I don't have time to be that good. I don't have a chance. The system's rigged. It can't work for me. What would you like on your bagel, dear? right? Because this is over. If they're not good enough, there is no shot for me. What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean? Like, how, how are you evaluating yourself? How are you evaluating that guy that shows up to marry your daughter? Don't take this personally, Ryan. How are you evaluating these things? Interestingly enough, at the conclusion to this most famous sermon, and the one like it in Luke, Jesus concludes both of them with the same warning. It's, it's really fascinating. Many of you know the warning. In some fashion, when he finished, he says both times, in a sense, he says, so now that I'm done teaching you about these principles of my kingdom, right? So in conclusion, so as to summarize all that's been said here, he says, I want you to understand, in summary, there are then two paths that have on them two gates. There are, in summation, two trees. One, one bears fruit that will give life. One bears fruit that's poisonous and will kill. One of those paths leads to life. One of those paths leads to destruction. And then, quite famously, he goes, and, and you sung this if you were a child growing up in church, right? There are two houses. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? And so there's two houses. One is built upon the rock, and will provide life, and the other one will build upon the sand. And ultimately, when the troubles of life come, it collapses and crushes those who took shelter in it. Now, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, I've discovered this over the last few weeks myself, to try to take it seriously, as Guy Jathani would say, to figure out this whole question of, of who's good and who's not, you've got to understand this conclusion in order to understand what Jesus is trying to teach. Because if you don't understand this conclusion, you're going to draw bad conclusions. Jesus keeps comparing two ways. There are two paths and two trees and two houses. And when you take this conclusion and you go back and you look at what he taught in this sermon, he lays this same principle out over and over and over. It's like a code that you overlay on what he was saying. And the two ways are not what you think. 
They're not what your mommy told you or your daddy told you. They're not likely what you learned in, in some kind of, uh, of religious programming. Because what we tend to think, right, when somebody says there's two ways, there's two houses, there's two paths, right? What we tend to think is, yeah, those are easy. There's people who follow God's commandments, right? That's the house built on the rock. And then there's people that don't and ignore God's commandments. And that's the house that's just going to get obliterated and wiped out, right? That's what Jesus is teaching. Build your house. Obey God, right? If you obey his commands, then you'll be good. You'll be a good person. And if you don't, well, then you'll be a bad person. A life built following God's commands, being righteous, being a good person, doing more good than bad, right? That's good. And being bad is not following the commands. That's bad. And so if you think that, it's actually quite easy to judge who's good and bad. You just simply look at what they're doing. You look at their works, what they do, what they've done. Quite easy. I'll determine who's good and bad based on what I see uh, how you've done. But here's the key thing about th th this, this teaching. When it comes to that path and those trees and the house, they actually, both paths and both trees and both houses, have you ever noticed that they both look the same? They both look the same. They, they both take their travelers somewhere. They both produce fruit and feed those who eat from them. They both provide comfort and shelter. But in the end, in each of them, in the end, what looks good in the beginning, in the end, it just leads to death. One leads to death, one leads to life. But how can you tell? And isn't that kind of scary when, when Jesus, God, Nabod, says, oh, by the way, there's two ways, and it's going to be hard to tell them apart. What you see in the sermon this week, and you're going to see in the coming weeks, is, is Jesus doesn't compare those who obey and don't obey. He doesn't compare those who, for example, when he talks about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He doesn't compare those who pray and don't pray. He says, no, no, no. when you pray, you both pray. When you pray, you've done it this way. I want you now to do it this way. He talks about giving to the poor. He doesn't compare people that give to the poor and that don't give to the poor. He compares people that give to the poor. And he goes, I know you're doing it this way, but now I'm, I want you to do it this way. On and on he goes, right? Same thing. Just keeps not looking at people that are good and bad based on if they do it or they don't do it. He's assuming they both do it, but he's saying, I want you to do it in a different way. He doesn't say, I want you to obey. He says, I want something different. What he says is, is that you, you keep the commands, you pray, you give to the poor, you live the so-called Christian life, right? You can do all of those things. And if you're a church person, this should scare the snot out of you, right? Just being honest. He says, you can keep all of the commands. You can pray and you can give to the poor. And you can live the so-called Christian life. And you can be on the path to ruin. Consuming poisonous fruit, living in a house just ready to crumble. But on the outside, it all looks so good. It all looked so similar. And so, what is a good person? How can you tell what is, a good, what is a good tree? What's a solid home? What's the right path? Well, when we talked last week, the first way that Jesus kind of, and we didn't talk about it this way, but the first way Jesus kind of lays out what it is to be a good person, right? The way that you could tell, well, how can I tell? 
One way that you would look is you would see the way that the person interacts with the world. There are two kinds of people, and they both have the light of God. That they, they, they both are aware of who God is, his teachings. There are two kinds of people with light, right? One of them puts their light on a stand for everyone to see, and another puts it under a bowl. There are two kinds of salt. We talked about it last week. There's one kind of salt that preserves goes into cultures, into cities, and preserves them, and adds flavor to them. And there's another kind of salt that's just not worthy of doing anything. Jesus said it's really just worthy of being trampled underfoot, right? One has, one has the potential to observe and enhance the other's lost its ability to do those things. Doesn't move into the world, right, and towards people, but instead it pulls away from people in the world. One looks right, think about this, one looks right and holy on the outside because they're doing all the godly things and hanging out with all the godly people, right? They, you know, they watch the religious channel. Everything's like perfect, right? They go to the right schools and everything. But they've lost their purpose and their way, even though it looks super holy. And then he goes, then there's another kind of people. And, and I think Jesus modeled this. It, it, actually, you'll notice if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, everything Jesus is teaching, he models, hanging around with all of the wrong people, being drawn, being attracted to the wrong kind of people and going to the wrong places, attracted to the worst kind of sinners and attractive to them. Super interesting that Matthew writes this, right? Jesus attracted to the worst kind of people and attractive to them. Matthew just walks away from his tax, tax collector's booth. And, and, and for Jesus, it was at the cost of his reputation. Remember the Pharisees, the teachers of the law? Those who, because of their righteousness, because of their desire to look good, would go nowhere near any of these people. And they keep accusing Jesus of being a, a drunk, a glutton. Jesus goes, look, there's two ways to live, salt and light. You want to be a good person, examine what you're doing. Second, then he goes on. He actually begins to walk them through the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. And instead of lowering the bar on those commandments, instead of abolishing the law, as some had claimed he was doing, he actually ratchets up this bar of righteousness. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. It's right after he says that your, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. He goes, you know, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You know, you're, you're an average guy sitting there, and you're like, of course, Jesus, commandment, commandment six, Exodus, we memorized this when we were kids, you shall not murder. Uh, Jesus, we, we make sure we put it right out there in front of the courthouse with the other nine that we can't really remember, but, but it's out there in front of the courthouse and Jesus, I would never kill anybody. This is actually one of my favorite teachings in the Bible, right? Because people, when we try to qualify who's a good person and who isn't, when you push, doesn't it always get down to, well, I haven't killed anyone, right? Like, ultimately, that's the only person there's no hope for, right? Which is why Jesus goes, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. What? Angry? In fact, interestingly enough, Jesus, uh, Jesus, and you'll see this in a second, he begins his look at these two, at two ways, two things that are, are responsible for more hurt and pain and human suffering than maybe any other two things. He starts with anger and lust. 
We want to understand what a good person is. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Okay, but let's talk about anger. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Raka is an Aramaic term. Some speculated that it comes from the sound when you clear your throat, kind of like, you know, like a, a, a kind of a contempt thing, a, a little bit of a disgust. Raka means that you essentially consider somebody unworthy. They're a nobody, a non-person. It's not outright hostility, it's indifference. If you neglect, if you, if you avoid it, if you don't care, if nothing breaks your heart, because remember, blessed are those who mourn. Hmm. If nothing breaks your heart, it's in a sense, when you have difference, indifference towards others, that's raka. It is the seed form, right, of hate, indifference. It's not spoken or pronounced because it doesn't need to be. It's an attitude of the heart. Can I just be honest with you? Well, I've never said, I've never, I didn't even know that word. I've never said that word. I'm good on this one. Check. Isn't Rocco what allows people like you and I to live in towns where the average medium income is nearly $200,000 a year while half the world lives on $5 a day? I love the Sermon on the Mount. Don't you love the Sermon on the Mount? So comforting. And he goes on as if you're like, okay, hold on. Wait a minute, what? Let me just sit there for a minute. And anybody who says, you fool, will be in dangers of the fire of hell. The word there in the Greek for fool is the word moros, from which we get our English word moron. Jesus is just keeping it real, right? Anyone who says you moron, right, is in dangers of the fire of hell. It means that anybody who denigrates another, calls them moron, the actual understand, the, the, the definition goes on. Anybody who says somebody is dull of understanding or lacking a grip on reality, Ladies and gentlemen, if this was true, Twitter would close today. There'd be nothing on Twitter. It is, it is a moron celebration where we all just kill each other on there. What would politicians have to talk about if this was fought? If Jesus was serious, what would a political debate be? Therefore, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. What you're going to see here, and this is really, it's beautiful and challenging. Over and over, Jesus is moving the bar, right, from a relationship with God that is defined by, a, by the vertical, by how I do and perform by, for God, by, by what I do, by how I keep the laws, by how I make my sacrifices. He's going to move that, right, my gift at the altar, the keeping of the 600 plus commandments. He's going to remove that, to the, he's going to change the bar to the horizontal. Be salt, be light to your brothers and sisters. Leave your gift here. Go and be reconciled. You can't be right with God unless you're right with those around you whose image is in, whose, God whose image is in them. You can't not care and say, oh, Raka. I mean, I'm, everybody can't go to Guatemala. I, I understand that. So please don't hear this the wrong way. But you can't watch the videos and go, I don't care. I don't care. And if you do, you have to be honest with yourself. You can't not care and say, you can't denigrate others and call them morons, but think you're good based on, on your performance of some external law or external righteousness. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of the heart. 
In the Beatitudes, Jesus is showing the kingdom was an upside-down kingdom, right? We talked about this. Blessed are the poor and the merciful and the meek and those who mourn. The values of Jesus' kingdom are upside-down from the values of the kingdom of the world. But now he's showing you not only are they upside-down, but the kingdom of God is inside-out. It is an internal change of heart that matters to God, not external behavioral modification. You see that? I mean, many of us started coming to church, right? Many of us started bringing our kids to church. Well, I need my kids. I want them to be good. I want them to have a moral upbringing. And so we introduce them to God, right, to get them to, to be good morally. I mean, that's not, that's not bad. It's just not right. It's just not how God relates to us based on your moral performance. Jesus goes on. He goes, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to an officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you're not going to get out until you've paid the last penny. Settle matters click quickly, right? Why? Because it is not a second priority when there's something going on between you and another human being. You have two choices, Jesus says. There are two kingdoms. There are two ways to settle matters. You can go and settle it, right, in love, or you can use the ways of the world and wind up in court. I, I do a lot of marriage counseling, as some of you would imagine, right? I watch this play out in my office every single day. There are two ways, right? There is one way to settle matters, and there is another way. You choose. First, anger. Now lust gets a little more interesting. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And you can imagine the crowd again, they're steeped in this teaching. They're right, yep, that's right. Commandment number seven, Jesus, I haven't killed anybody. I am struggling with that anger thing, so I'm gonna have to work on that a little bit. I got you on that one. But I am clean on this lust part. I have not, I have not committed any adultery. It's just me and my wife, right? I haven't killed anybody, and I haven't cheated on my wife. Check. But I tell you, uh-oh, never lowers the bar, right? Never lowers the bar. He doesn't go, but I tell you, you know, if you had an accident on the business trip. He goes, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, here I am sitting on the side of the mountain. Joni, warm up the car. Kingdom of the heart, internal righteousness, not, not external horizontal takes priority over the vertical. What Jesus is saying here, to get a, a clear picture, to be fair, the NIV doesn't translate this perfectly. A lot of other versions translate it the, the way I believe it was meant to, to, be, to be translated. The New King James, for example, says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To lust for her, in other words, you, you're not noticing a pretty woman that goes by and, and find her attractive, and so now, well, I'm screwed. That wasn't it. It was, right, that you looked at this woman, and, and ladies, this goes both ways. You, you look at a guy, right? You look with, at them with the intention of, of lusting, uh, of, of pulling them into your mind, in a sense, using them. What's the point? The point is when you lust after somebody, right, what are you doing? You are consuming them for your own pleasure. There is no relationship. There's no submission unto one another as unto the Lord. There's no taking care of. There's no sacrifice. Just pure pleasure, and it's all mine. I, I can use you to get what it is that I need. It's all about me and my wants and my needs. 
And, and then Jesus says something so powerful about these two concepts. It's so often misunderstood, too, about anger and, and lust. He goes, this is really good. Jesus is, I mean, he's just, he, if your right eye causes you to stumble, he goes, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Can I get an amen? amen. So here's what we're going to do for everybody that just amened. I've taken the liberty of having a couple of the elders come forward, and if you would make two lines, one on the right and one over here on the left. Over here, we'll have the eye-plucking station. Um, we'll be taking them out one at a time. Uh, if you do it without a sedative, I think the Lord would appreciate that would be suffering even more for Christ. And so this will be the pluck line, and, and over here, we'll have another elder, and this will be the chopping station, right? And, uh, and probably, some of you are probably going to need to line up in both. Over the centuries, people have, you know people have actually done this? They have read this, and they have said, huh, sin is serious, and it is. But Jesus is imploring hyperbole here. Why? Well, because, because sin is serious. It, it destroys people and relationships and separates us one from another and from God. So at one level, Jesus is addressing the seriousness with which we have to take what our brokenness is doing to ourselves and, and to others and, and to, to the world that God made and called good. And yet, at another level, Jesus is challenging our understanding of what it means to be good. Really wrestle with this one. This is really good. If being good means you stop breaking commandments, right? I'm good. How are you good? Well, I keep the commandments, right? Well, if it's about just this vertical relationship with God, which is ruled by the external keeping of the law, right? Then if that's what it's all about, and, my, my, and I'm stealing, I'll cut off my right hand, and then I'll be good with God. If it's, if it's because I'm lusting, I'll pluck my eyes out, because then I'll be good with God. I'll be right. I'll be righteous. I'll be a good person. But here's what Jesus knows. You know this. You can pluck out both of my eyes and my ability to lust. And, and, and this is really about desire, right? My desire for another woman or for a bigger house or a fancier car. You can pluck out all of my eyes, right? And it has no ability on my, it doesn't impact my ability to lust at all, does it? Well, if we're honest, right? Truth be told, most of us close our eyes when we're lusting, right? You can cut off both of my hands, doesn't prevent me from stealing your reputation with my words, so I guess I should cut my mouth off. Uh, Jesus, later on in a few minutes in the sermon, in a few moments, he's going to say, so do not worry. What are you going to do now? Read this religiously, and now you've got to figure out how you're not going to worry. When you come up with that one, let me know. But, you know, if you're going to read it religiously, in the Pharisaical view, right, the religious view, let's be honest, often in our view, the law could be satisfied and goodness is attained if we just stop sinning. You're right if, if, if you've done, you're righteous if you've done nothing wrong. You could avoid sinning if, you, simply, uh, sinning if you simply eliminate the body parts that make the actions possible. Dallas Willard, brilliant guy. He put it this way. He goes, then you could roll into heaven as a mutilated stump. <laughs> right? I mean, of course, being acceptable to God is so important that if cutting body parts off could achieve it, one would actually be wise to cut them off. But far from suggesting that they have any advantage before God, that you could, you could gain it in this way, Jesus' teaching in this passage is exactly the opposite. 
You see this? He's actually teaching the exact opposite. The mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. The deeper question always concerns who you are, not what you did or what, what you can do. What would you do if you could? Eliminating body parts doesn't change any of that. If you dismember your body to the point where you could never murder or even look hatefully in another, never commit adultery or even look to lust, your heart could still be full of anger and contempt and obsessive desire for what's wrong, no matter how thoroughly stifled or suppressed it is. Jesus would tell these same men, some of you know this teaching, he said, from within, out of the heart of men, the thoughts of evil proceed, fornication, theft, murder, adulteries, all these same issues, right? Acts of, uh, of blasphemy, arrogance, foolishness, all of these come from inside and pollute the person. The goodness of the kingdom, right? The goodness of the kingdom is your heart, right? It's the love of God for those around us that fill us and, and, and push out, crowd out these other forms of evil. From that goodness come deeds of respect and purity that characterize sexuality as God wanted it to be. Now, he goes on, if you didn't get it, same teaching. He goes, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. This is actually, if you don't understand this teaching, it's really interesting. One of the most important things in the male mind of Jesus' day, unfortunately, still in the, the male and female mind of, of all of us today, it was if you wanted to get rid of a woman that didn't please you, you could just divorce her. You could just say, divorced, I divorce you. And on this point, the man really had great discretion. Whereas from the woman's point of view, divorce was brutal. Practically speaking, right? Practically speaking, she could not be chosen by anybody else. When Jesus gave his teaching, the divorce then, as practice, was unacceptable, right? The men who were his closest students, when Jesus got done with this teaching on divorce, this is how they responded. They said, if this is how things are, it's better not to marry at all. A man was generally thought to be righteous or good in the matter of divorce if when he sent his wife away, he gave her a written statement that declared her to be divorced. She at least then had a certificate to prove her status as unmarried. That allowed her to defend herself against the charge of adultery if she was found with another man, right? Because that could result in her death. So the teaching was, if you're going to get divorced, you've got to make sure that you give your wife a certificate of divorce. And so Jesus goes... It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, gentlemen, it is not about the practical outworking of a keeping of a law. It's about your heart for your wife. It's about, it's about caring and loving this woman. It is about her future and her present, not yours. It's about love and sacrifice and relationship. It is other-focused. It is not law-focused. You do not meet the requirements of the law by just simply giving this woman a pink slip. And finally, again, you've heard said that to people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I'm telling you, don't swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of, of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you, cannot even make, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, it's a matching of the external with the internal. It's not just about keeping vows because I made an oath, Amongst God's people in his kingdom, there's never to be a vow or an oath. Why? 
because you don't need to make a vow or an oath. There is no lying. There is no manipulation of facts. There is no bending of the truth. There is no manipulation of others. There is no deception. I don't need to swear on a Bible about anything. Why? Because what's on the outside, my words match my heart. My heart is others-focused. I would never lie to you in, in order to manipulate you or gain an advantage over you. What's true on the inside matches the outside. And so I ask you, isn't, isn't that the beginning of a definition of what it means to be a good person? Right? Somebody so radically transformed by Jesus that they begin to act like him. They don't keep the law to get to God. But because they have God, they live like God. And in doing so, they wind up keeping the law. If you were here last week, right? This is literally, Sky talked about the, the teaching of the prodigal son. This is the, the, the teaching, the non-parable teaching of it. There are two sons. One is using the father to get the father's stuff. And so he chooses to do it the socially unacceptable way and wish his father dead. The other son, the older son, he wants the same thing. He wants the same thing from the father, but he doesn't want, want the father either. He just wants the father's stuff. He's just willing to wait it out and do it the more socially acceptable way. He obeys the commands and he keeps the law. Both wanted what the, the father had. They didn't want the father. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. The father is not primarily interested in changing your behavior. Let me say that again, because you're not going to hear it preached a lot. The father is not primarily interested in changing your behavior. He is interested in having your heart and transforming your, your heart. Your behavior will come. What allows you to live like this? I mean, if we're honest, at first reading, at first blush, Jesus raises the bar. He doesn't lower it. How do you live like this? Is it even possible? And the answer is perfectly no, not yet. Jesus' kingdom has come in part, not in full. You're invited into it today where our transformation begins, in part, not in full. But what fuels it is not a desire to keep the law in order to get something from God, but instead to understand that you already have a heavenly father, to understand how wonderful he is. This is why we did communion this morning, to understand how much he loves you, how he's pursued you, what he gave up in order to find you, to get your value from the love that the Father has for you and not from the Father's things. In the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to inaugurate, we obey because we understand our value as children of God. We obey because of our value to him, not to get value from him. I often think about when I come home from work, if, if my son brought out the garbage, it's a Tuesday, Monday night in Long Valley, and I come home and the garbage is out, and I walk in the house, and I, I'm like, hey, Caleb, I saw you took the garbage out. What if, what if Caleb said, well, I knew I better take it out, or you were going to kill me? Well, that's not all that pleasing. What if I walked in and I said, hey, Kay, I saw you took the garbage out, right? And he said, well, I, I, I did it, Dad, because uh, I know allowances at the end of the week right? This is why we do these things. What if I walked in and said, hey, I saw you took the garbage out. Oh, that, dad, in light of what you've done for me, like, I'm just, I'm just serving you, man. I am, I knew it would please you. And I just wanted to please you. I just wanted to serve. Radically different. If you remember, Jesus said in my kingdom, there is only one law. Here's, here's, if you sit there and you go, how do I fulfill this? Here's how you fulfill it. Here's what Paul, he had to be thinking about this. 
Here's what Paul told the Romans. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, here they are, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Sound familiar? And whatever other command there may be, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. On another occasion, he put it quite simply, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Are you a good person? Well, you're never going to be good enough to earn your way to God. Jesus did that for you. But maybe it's time to start looking at ourselves and others a little bit differently. Does the inside match the out? And perhaps, perhaps, what would it be like if we all started evaluating how good we are based not on how, how I perform for God, but how much I love for others? Let me pray for you. Father, many of us, even those that have followed you for years, have fundamentally misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. May our eyes be opened this morning to the love of God, and may we live like sons and daughters of the Most High King, lives of love where the outside matches the inside. I ask it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing?